0: Welcome to the ABCA's podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Brownlee. Our next guest on the ABCA podcast is Don Snedden. This is the fourth installment of our ABCA Hall of Fame podcasts. Coach Snedden is a 2021 Hall of Fame inductee. As a player, Coach Nedden played for Wally Kincaid at Cerritos, and Dave Snow and Augie Greedo at Cal State Fullerton. Coach Snedden spent 32 years as the head coach at Santa Ana College. He is the all-time winningest coach in California community college history with 1,072 victories. He was the first coach to 900 and then 1,000 wins. He also has experience on the pro side coaching with the Colorado Rockies. Coach Snedden also coached in the Cape Cod League. Coach Snedden was an assistant for Jerry Weinstein with the Wareham Gateman in 2016 and 2017. He was the Gateman's manager in 2018, leading them to the Cape League Championship. Coach Snedden is a 42-year continuous ABCA member and is a 2015 California Community College Baseball Coaches Association Hall of Fame inductee. Get ready to learn on this one. Coach Snedden is one of the best educators we have in the game. He's one of the first coaches to work with Ken Revisa. He taught the entire time he was coaching at Santa Ana. We dive into how he blended the classroom and the baseball field. We also get right into how he used breathing techniques to help future firefighters and policemen. Let's welcome Coach Ned into the podcast. Here with Don Sneden, uh, Hall of Famer, 2001 Hall of Famer here in ABCA, and 32 seasons at Santa Ana, and um, at the time, and I, I didn't check, but the all-time winningest coach in California Community College history is—is is that still the case? I did not know if anybody beat you yet.
1: Well, thank God for the coronavirus. Uh, there's Ron Scott at Fresno, has been coach as long as I have, and uh, and a little bit longer. So he's—he uh, was going to break it this year, but. I get to hold that title just for one more year because you didn't get all his games in.
0: <laughs> is that? I mean, is that even something you even really worry about?
1: Uh, I mean, it, you know, it is what it is. I mean, it, it's, it's nice to have that title for a while and I got to take it from Jerry Weinstein, a good friend and hall of Famer too, two and that, but uh, you know, again, they're like anything else. They sort of disappear, you know, with time goes. And, and I, I didn't, I knew somebody would come along and Ron's really the only one on that. And he's in central California. So, um, good for him.
0: Yep. No, it's, it's awesome. You know, can you talk about your path a little bit? You've had a great path. You've been around some great baseball people and, and just your path along the way and the mentors that you've had along the way.
1: Yeah. It's, it's sort of an interesting thing. I was, uh, I started my really my baseball in, in Compton. I was raised in Compton for 18 years, and people look at me and say, you're not from Compton. I say, yeah, I'm from Compton. I went to school there for 18 years and, uh, or lived in Compton for 18 years and played for a great coach in high school that actually was um, one of the guys that we won some Connie Mack championships in Farmington and stuff like that. So we are a pretty good group. But in those days at our community college level, you had to live in the district. Uh, so every community college had like eight schools to draw from. And if you didn't live in those eight schools, you couldn't go there. So after my senior year, times were getting a little bit tough and Compton, and my family moved over to Bellflower, uh, one for my sister could go to a school, a different school. And also so I could play at Cerritos college. And, uh, that was the start of it. So I got to play two years under Wally Kincaid, which was, you know, as we've many, many of us said, the. John Wooden of of baseball uh, taught us the game inside and out and uh, really really never developed a relationship with Wally until after we finished coaching. Uh, At the time, you just played for him, and you just did what was going on. And then I wasn't going to play after my sophomore year there, uh, and all of a sudden Augie Greedo comes in town and uh, takes over the Cal State Fullerton job. And Dave Snow, who was an ex-Cerritos College bird, came over and says, hey, we're going to try to turn this thing around because he hadn't had much success. So he just took a bunch of us Cerritos guys knowing that we knew how to play the game. And that's how that uh, Fullerton program got turned around. And uh, so I played two years for Augie, then coached two years from Augie, and then headed over to Santa Ana College.
0: When you left Fullerton for Santa Ana, was that the plan, or had you planned on staying at Fullerton?
1: Yeah, when, when I left Fullerton um, – you know, I, I coached two years. I was a student. thing. I was working on my master's degree. Uh, I knew that I wanted to coach at that time. Um, and I didn't know exactly where or what level, but I loved to teach. And it was part of my I really was almost going to be an exercise physiologist. I didn't know what direction I had a mentor at Cal State Fullerton. And luckily, I got a job at Santa Ana that allowed me to do both. And it was uh, it's probably why I didn't leave. I really enjoyed the classroom. I worked with firefighters and policemen and testing them and helping their mental game and that whole process. So I, I could jump back and forth and wear different hats.
0: What did you take? I mean, from that, you're training, you're training policemen and firefighters. What are you using on the baseball side with them?
1: Oh, well, I tell you, it's the same thing. You know, it really is. It's how to... If you think about it, really, you you look at firefighters and they come up on a big fire. They're overwhelmed. They have to get in control themselves. Um, I had one captain tell me, because we talked about taking a deep breath and just, you know, before you go up to the plate. Well, he said he came upon a big fire. And the first thing he did, he was overwhelmed. He took this deep breath, turned around, turned his back to the fire. And all his people are looking at him. And then he turned back in and says, okay, you take the hose here and here and i love the story cuz it's the same thing he was he would have been out of his element cuz i probably would have told him to do the wrong thing so i ne- needed to gather my emotions and one of my sayings i've been known for is about staying right here and i use the term staying right here is not getting too high or too low no matter what the circumstances are and i think the championships we've won is if i've gone back and look at it cuz we didn't make a lot of mistakes and the other team did and they tried to do too much, where I think our team was ready just to play their game and let the other team make the mistakes.
0: Yeah, I think peak performance. You see it across all levels with athletes, uh, you know, theater, you know, actors, musicians, uh, yes. surgeons. You know, anybody yeah. in high pressure pressure situations is using some sort of a routine to to get them in the present moment.
1: Well, I'm a disciple of the. the Ken Revisa unfortunately passed away, and Ken started working with us right away. Being a Cal State Fullerton guy, me being one, he brought over his students when he was first getting into this. I was fortunate enough to be a part of reading his and, and editing his first book there, and as a result, he sent people over. So we've had a close relationship, and it, it helped me tremendously with the coaching and also carrying on. I mean, he worked Ken worked with this. You talked about surgeons and uh, the military. Uh, we had a guy come in that was uh, sweeping mines off the dirt road and he had to stay focused. If he lost focus for a second, he could blow up his whole platoon and his, his car. So um, that's mental focus. That's pressure. So uh, it, it all of that really helped me with my career.
0: Do you think Coach Kincaid kept that, that way on purpose with the players? You know, maybe not keeping it, you know, the way he did w- with the players?
1: Yeah, he was not a real personal, you know, get to know the players, put his arm around you type of guy. Uh, he had things, and probably Horton alluded to it too. I mean, he had simple little things. He always had a toothpick. And if he took the toothpick out of his mouth and threw it down, you knew you were in trouble. You didn't have to say one word. You just went down and sit on the bench, and that was it. And you just know you're somewhere along the line. You're going to you're gonna get something. But uh, uh, And then the strong tradition was really neat uh, because the – freshmen really carried on the stuff to the sophomores and remember we're in a two-year school so it's a rebuilding year every single year we don't have the luxury before year but uh wally's reputation exceeded him preceded him and we knew what we were getting into with that he didn't have to say much um we went to class we went to school uh in the classroom he taught a baseball class learned a lot of things in there as he used the baseball field as his classroom too so Uh, I think the best thing we saw there during those days is how uh, we played the game. We respected the game. We didn't disrespect the game. Uh, Simple little things like, you know, when we took infield, outfield, we never said anything. And that drove teams crazy. I mean, you know, hey, throw it here and, you know, all this sort of rah-rah. We didn't say anything. And uh, we didn't say anything during the game. I mean, coaches said, hey, you win with, you know, throwing strikes, playing catch and, and that. And that's what we did.
0: What did you learn the most from Augie Garrido?
1: Well, Augie was a promoter um, when he's coming in. I mean, here's this man, you know, was up in San Luis Obispo and tried to turn that program around. And all of a sudden he was like Bill Beck. He wore white shoes and nobody wore white shoes. We started wearing white shoes. I go, oh, my God, we're in trouble. Wally Kincaid. You wore black shoes. You couldn't even have stripes on them. You had to color the stripes off of them. So we go from one and everybody wore their pants the same way. Uh, and Augie was a little bit you know, more loose with that. But uh, well, he believed in himself and he believed in us and he motivated us. And uh, he was lucky. He had Dave Snow with him too, which was a good X's and O guy and X Cerritos guy. So the transition was actually pretty simple you know, to carry that on there. And then once Augie got going, he started getting good athletes, not just us average guys from the streets. He started getting guys from all over Southern California and California to come in and supplement and then build off of that. So he was a promoter. I mean, one of the smoothest talking guys. I, I always wanted his ability to talk to umpires the way he did. Uh, he never slurred a word in the heat of the moment. He just spewed out those things using five syllable words and everything else at that time. And I mean, it was an art and I probably shouldn't say, but I will say, he, he, you know, in those days you could chew uh, tobacco in those things. And he had the ability to maybe pronounce his P's a little bit more and some maybe tobacco came out in the umpire's face. Well, he couldn't throw them out because it wasn't necessarily on purpose, but it was on purpose, you know? So he he threw in some of those, I don't know where he thought of the words, but it was it was something to, to make sure the umpire got a little spray going on there.
0: <laughs> you know, you talked about coach Horton. Um, do you have any good George Horton stories?
1: Well, I mean, here, George owes everything to me. I mean, he probably talked a lot about Wally and then he talked a lot about Augie, but I was actually probably his last, one of his last coaches in his career that coached George Horton because after he finished He played no pro ball. He didn't do anything else. He went into coaching. So uh, all three of our names go right together. You know, Dorito, Kincaid, Sneddon, they're all just, you can't even separate. And, of course, I'm kidding on that. That that has nothing to do with that at all. But, uh, you know, playing with George for a year and then obviously coaching George for a year was quite a transition. Um, George was only guy. I mean, how many left-handed throwing catchers? Uh, ever get to play in college baseball, and George was one of those. So, you might say that was one strike against him. But, you know, he could hit a little bit. He knew the game, coached great first base. He he contributed in a lot of ways. You know, off the field, it was a challenge because I hung out with those guys, and you know, and I was in charge of, you know, checking on rooms and all that stuff. Um, so it put us in a pretty tough position at times. And um, I won't go into detail, but there was a couple times I had to go to that room which happened to be in George Horton's room and basically say, OK, listen, we got to calm this thing down a little bit. Luckily, we didn't take many road trips at Cal State. So we drove our own cars to the game. Uh, we didn't have a bus. We didn't have anything like that. So the only time we got that was in the playoffs. It was like taking a vacation. So I didn't have to do that too often.
0: I tell coaches that all the time. I did the same thing. I played at Evansville and then I coached there. I think that's the hardest thing to do is to have to coach the guys that you played with because they know all your stuff. You know, what were some other things that that helped you with that transition of coaching guys that you played with?
1: Yeah. Well, I I think they respected my game that I brought to it. I wasn't a great player. I had some skills and won some honors and some things like that at Cal State Fullerton, which was great. But I think they respected my game, and, and that helped with that transition. And I didn't try to overwhelm them with anything of my vast knowledge. We just tried to do what we did. And, and that sort of started my college career in that I learned to not overcoach because I did have a lot of knowledge. I thought I did anyway. I mean, I come from the greatest coaches around, but, you know, you have to, you have to coach to the level that you're at. Uh, I like to call it spoon feeding players. You give them so much information that they can handle and that's it. And every player is different. Some people can't handle some of them, and some people can. And that was the biggest adjustment when I did pro ball uh, with the Colorado Rockies and uh, up in Modesto. I had Dominicans that had a very low level of education They only played basically just some baseball and they did in premier type thing, all-star type things. I had high school kids from bad high school programs. I had some college kids and had, you know, a mixture. I had some very good college players. So when I looked at them, I just like said, where am I gonna start? I mean, this is a baseball, this is that. So one of the first things I did is I have a baseball savvy test and it wasn't real looked on in pro ball to do this but I did it anyway. And I gave him the savvy test of simple things like don't make the first out of third or whatever it is. And I got it translated in Spanish for the Dominicans. And I had these guys take that, and I was shocked. I mean, I'm just like, we got to start from here to there. We can't be making these mistakes. So it was a huge adjustment, uh, working with all different levels. Versus college, you know, I had time to prepare for them. You're thrust with these guys. You got like two weeks, maybe. You get to know them, and then you go to your starting your games. And and then they jump around. You know, they go up, and they go down, and new people come in. so that was a real challenging time, you know, coaching wise with those guys, because you just didn't know. Again, the mistakes they made, you just shake your head and say that that you can't do that, you know, type of thing. But again, it it is what it is, and I learned. It took a while to get to that and and adjust to some of them. I had some very good players. A guy named Trevor Story. He's not too bad of a player, you know, with the Rockies that's playing, and uh, Dahl is with them out there, and you know. So I have about four or five guys that played. And we still laugh at that and some of the things about the savvy test and, and that because I'll get on him. Like I never story always slides in head first, second base, and it kills me. His hands are, he has fragile hands, and he's broken them like twice. I said, learn to slide with your feet and prolong your career, please. So now he called and he said he had mittens on. Him. You know, he has his oven mitts, so like that's going to protect him. You know? So I said, all right, I'll, I'll deal with that for a while.
0: When did you develop the baseball savvy test?
1: Well, I came, uh, my mentor, Jim Reach, had someone like that. And I just expanded and expanded and expanded on that. So usually, like, my probably about my second year of taking over the, the Helms, like in 81, 82. And it's nationwide. It's nothing great. I'm surprised people haven't done it. And it's out there. I mean, I know it's in New Zealand. I spoke over there. And it's in Germany now. Um, and I got people asking me all the time for it. But it just, just starts off so you know where to start with your team. It gives you a head start. And I've done that every year that I coach with my players coming in because I had guys that came from good high school programs and I had guys come in from terrible high school programs. So you can't blame them if they don't know. So I always took that responsibility.
0: Was that the first thing that you would do with them?
1: Yes. Yeah, we had a classroom. I took it from Wally. I took that. We, I started a class. So during the winter, every Monday, Wednesday at, uh, at uh, 12 o'clock, we would go in the classroom for an hour and a half and we just would talk baseball. And uh, it was great. It gave us more of a learning environment because we're in the classroom. They weren't distracted or anything else like that. And uh, I think I would I would still do that today if I was coaching at the college level.
0: Well, that, that was comfort level for you, too, because you also taught. So you're comfortable in that setting.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. And then, again, I can't hold them responsible for things they don't know. So we would go through this and talk about that. Okay, you made the third out of third base. Is that something we want to do? Why not? We discussed that. It took me like three days to grade the test, even though it was two faults, multiple choice, because we get into these discussions and some were quite comical. Some were like shaking your head and others were, okay, I never really thought of that, you know, type of thing. Like just a quick example, you know, a hit and run, you must swing at the pitch wherever it's it's thrown. So the book answer is true, obviously, but guy comes up, well, what if it's in the dirt or what if it, you know, hits up in the backstop? I go, well, that's a good point. I said, but you didn't write that in there, and blah, blah, blah. So we go on and on and on, and it actually gets a little comical, but it's a good point. It's, it's really true.
0: Yes, it is. Yeah. yeah. Did you plan on staying at Santa Ana as long as you did?
1: Well, yes and no. I had some opportunities, um, and I really had to wait. I was really fortunate that our faculty there were great faculty. I was very close with our basketball coach, football coach, and people told me in other colleges how lucky we were uh, we knew the kids. Our kids, you know, we went to their birthday parties and weddings and everything else. And uh, uh, I, I really loved teaching, and I really love coaching. the The four year thing was was there, but you know, they weren't. There wasn't the big enticement of money that there is nowadays. During those things, I probably made as much as. Well, I know I made more money than Gary Adams at UCLA one time when he was coaching. He was shocked. When I saw him at a convention. I told him what I was making. He goes, well, I, make, I don't even make that. So I go, well, I'm a full professor. Yes. I said, you know, that, that's this professor, Don said, type of thing. So, um, and that was my line with the Rockies when I was getting hired. I was talking with a general manager at the time saying, hey, we're going to change the landscape here. We don't want to hire coaches anymore. We want to hire teachers. Well, that just hooked me in right away because I've always been a teacher. And I thought maybe the organization was going to get into that instead of everything being the same, they were going to maybe make a change. And, uh, and I said, well, listen, I'm your guy. I'm not only a teacher, I'm a professor. And I pulled my card out, Professor Donson. I thought it was funny and good. He didn't laugh. I didn't know. I ended up getting a job, but I don't know. I, uh, it, maybe, maybe it wasn't the time to pull that card out, but. Uh,
0: did you like, did you like having guys for two years or, you know,
1: yeah. You know, that, that's a good question. Uh, right. Cause, uh, some people said that must be really hard. Well, there's guys you don't like and you're glad they're gone in two years and they're great players. So that's the first part of it. And then there's guys you would love to have for two more years. There's guys you would love to have your daughter, marry. you know, that I'm just very close with. So there was ups and downs with that, but you know, you get used to it and you just realize that this is what's going to happen. And, the great thing is you got to see them go on. Uh, we sent a lot of players to four-year schools and watch them excel and the pro ball and everything else. So uh, we were really high school as a training point. But I, I really felt that was our job. Uh, we got players with baggage at the community college level. And that's not a negative connotation. Uh, uh, the baggage meant that maybe they didn't do well in the classroom yet. They weren't strong yet. They, uh, they needed to develop their skills. Uh, they needed more exposure. Uh, they needed some time to improve because that age level, that 18, 19, 20s, there's a lot of physical stuff. I mean, we we lifted hard. We had a good strength program. Um, we did a lot of testing, being an exercise physiologist to help them from vision to strength to whatever. And so it was a real transition for them. But I always felt my players, when they left, they could go play and step in and play wherever it might be, Cal State, Fulton, which it did, or UCLA or wherever it might be. I felt they were ready to go. And even into Pro Bowl. And I think when you go back and look at it, you see that they were for the most part.
0: Well you did all the heavy lifting. I you know, as a four year coach, I was at the four-year level for twenty two yeah. years. Felt like yeah. junior years when guys really started to figure things out. Okay. So you did a lot of the heavy lifting those first two years for other coaches.
1: Oh yeah. And and when I played too we didn't lift. We had a thing called a synergist, which was a rope on a Resistance type training, like maybe a TRX type thing nowadays, and that was it. And if I could have lifted, I would have loved to see how good of a player I could have been. I mean, I was a whopping 150 pounds. Uh, I could have been 165 with some strength. I mean, I end up 15 years later being able to hit the ball farther than I ever hit when I was playing, uh, still using wood and everything else, because I made the transition. I was the first class to start to use aluminum bats in uh, 1973, and so we were using wood all during our JC years and all that, and when you aren't very strong, you're using wood. I mean, Ken uh, K just looked at me, and first thing he said, he saw my right-handed stroke. He said, you need to learn how to hit left-handed, so he sent me down to the to field C, which is where you go when you're like washed out type thing, and I just hit off the machine and started learning to hit left-handed, so all I ended up doing was Flaring it to the left field, hitting on the ground, use my speed, and uh, learn just to be a pest and learn the strike zone. Ended up being a be- better left-handed hitter than I was a right-handed hitter. Um, but it was something that I had to do to get my career to go because I, I, I didn't do anything right. I had no power. I was a weak, weak hitter. So their shift nowadays where they have all those infielders like that, they move the old outfielders in. So it was before their time when I got up. Very rarely did I hit one over the infielders' heads, so. especially with Wood.
0: You've coached a lot of guys that have gotten the opportunity to go play professional baseball. You're in the Rockies organization. You coach Trevor Story. What's the difference for the guys that actually make it to the big leagues and the ones that don't?
1: Well, that's a good question. And, and I got to coach out in the Cape Cod League, and uh, we won the championship out there, and we had some good players. Um, and, and they'll make it one of these days. I'm very excited for them to be there. And unfortunately, they got derailed uh, this year, like everybody else on that journey. But, uh, you know, the big focus on those guys, and, and I didn't really realize until afterwards like Trevor's story, I knew offensively, I think he could grow and be a good hitter. I didn't think he would be a bona fide shortstop, I thought his range was a little limited. I saw him more as a third baseman type thing at the next level. Um, But I hadn't spent a lot of time in pro ball. That was my first year, and I wish I would have done that maybe 15 years earlier to help my players understand what pro ball is really like because it is a completely different game. Um, What
0: were the differences for you on the pro side rather than the amateur side?
1: Well, the pro side, the players, are they're teammates, but they're really not teammates. They're they're there for themselves, and they're trying to get to the next level, and I understand that. I really do. Uh, For me as a coach, I'm not – you have an organization like the Modesto Nuts. Uh, they want to win. And you want your players to learn how to win. But that was not a priority in Pro Bowl. Uh, they dictated a lot of things. They told me who's going to pitch, who's not going to pitch. They told me I can't pinch run for guys. I can't do this and can't do this. I didn't really get to manage. And that part I didn't like about Pro ball was that uh, I never got to use what I felt were my skills. Uh, but the more important thing on it was still developing that relationship. That was the thing with those, those guys. And there was guys you knew were never going to make it, and I would discuss plan B with them. And I got in trouble with the organization for discussing plan B. Being too I'm honest. It, Being right? too yeah.
0: honest with them. <laughs> yeah,
1: and, and I know that you got to have a plan B because it's going to happen one of these days. And at that level, I mean, you just walk into the clubhouse in spring training and there's a guillotine of coaches. Billy, come on over here. And you sit in that room and you're done. So your career starts all over. So you better always have a plan B with that. And so the players, I'm still close with some of those pro players with all that. They're good guys and everything else. But I just really felt it was a business. It really was a business. And that part I didn't really enjoy. The college level, the kids are, you know, you're preparing them for an education, you're preparing for life. Uh, and, and that's maybe what I did better than just actually coaching baseball, per se. Um, and, and that was the nicest thing because I still are these days when guys come back and they name your kid after you, or you go to a funeral, unfortunately, I've been to those, and they bury that my player in his uniform. That's how much you know you've touched them and been a part of their life. And then when they bring their kids, you know, this is Coach Ned, and You've heard me talk about him. Uh, those are the things that coaching pays off. And that's why you stay in the game so long. It obviously wasn't the money, but it's those things like that.
0: With your teaching background, do you think that's one of the things that helped you sustain success every year with your teams is because you were doing such a good job of teaching the game And, and life skills also?
1: Well, and that's another good, interesting point, because one of the things I am proud about is the consistency of Santa Ana College when I coached there, um, I mean, we finished in that top tier. We finished in the. We went to the playoffs every single year, except for my very last year, uh, with some things that happened with that. But I mean, for 26 years, we matched the second state. That's tough to do, especially in our league. I mean, the there's a lot of Park, teams. Oh, it's a tough team. It's a tough league. I mean, we had Orange Coast with Aunt Billy. they were good. Uh, Mike Main was there, of course. Scott Pickler at Cypress, and I mean, it was a tough league. Usually, out of California, the top six teams, you know, five are in our league. So you went to battle every day, but to be able to win that league as often as we did to compete with them. Uh, and, and people ask me the same question. You ask me, how could you do that year in and year out? Because the talent level changes. And at the beginning we had to wait for that talent level. I mean, we had to ask, you know, we had to wait and see if people moved in our district. And later on, the rules change where you can live out of the district, but they got to make first contact. So that's open up. Then later on, they open it up after you finish. You can live anywhere. And actually, that happens after I finish coaching college level. But, yeah, getting, getting them there and preparing them for that, it was a challenge. And I enjoyed that challenge every year because you had to change. Some years, I had great hitters. I had a guy named Bob Hamlin uh, who was a rookie player of the year. And when he took BP, he left UCLA. And a quick, interesting story. I I was happy to be down in Mexico at a a Cabo, uh, enjoying a little vacation in December, and my assistant calls. In those days, the uh, telephones weren't very good, and he he kept saying something about a Hamlin or something or whatever, and this and that. And I said, I I don't know, I don't Ham, and I have no idea what you're talking about. Finally, about after 15 minutes, we said Bob Hamlin. He said Bob Hamlin. I said, yeah, he's obviously he's a very good player with UCLA. He could hit. He wants to come over at mid-semester, you know. So my great coach, I said, well, you tell him uh, I'll be back in two days, but you tell him he's got to earn his position. I'm not going to give it to him. Well, this is the best hitter in college baseball. And here I'm telling him he's got to earn his position, you know. And I know inside he was a life, life changer. I mean, so those years I didn't have to coach much. I mean, he had guys around him, and, and we ended up losing in the tough game of uh, Jerry Weinstein's team. Uh, I always remember in Irvine when the wind was blowing like 50 miles an hour out. We shouldn't even been playing, but uh, we did play. And we had a soft pitcher, and they hit some fly balls more than we did, and, and they ended up winning. But Bob was one of those lifetime guys. You, you don't get that. And that's the only thing I missed, getting at the college level, Um with the uh, the pro level you get to saw see some of those athletes we very rarely got the top of the top at our level uh maybe two three times on like that so uh yeah it, it was it was great and you, and you just sometimes you had to play little ball sometimes you could sit back and hit the home run ball especially when loom the bats started coming in and they were juiced we had a smaller yard I mean I'm not bunting. I mean anybody could hit it out you one through nine hit it so you change your coaching philosophy.
0: You know Jerry Weinstein and Scott Pickler being in the Cape was that the draw for you to go up there and, and coach? Because I'm a Cape alum, I co- I played yeah. and coached up there, so I think it's the best amateur baseball in the well, world. But was that the draw for you to go up there? Because those guys were up there.
1: It, it was only, and, and I tell you, I'm an Alaska guy. Yeah. Uh, it, during my times, Alaska was as good or better than the Cape. Yes. Those times. I mean, there was phenomenal players. And being a West Coast guy, that's where we went. And so I coached up there. I took teams up there. So the Cape League, Cape Cod thing, I only heard of from Pickler about it a little bit. And I said, Man, I don't know. So about five years the Alaska League went down, you know, yeah. just not nearly what it was. So that started to be an interest. And Jerry ended up getting that job. And I remember we're at the ABCA convention, and he says, How would you like to come out and coach? And I said, Well, I don't know. I never really thought about it. Let me think about it. So I thought about it and it wasn't the money because I ended up staying in a house like a player did. That was a draw. I paid my whole way out. There. I
0: did the same thing.
1: Yeah. Uh, the car I got was my family that I live with and their best friends to this day. I mean, I loved it. So, I mean, you know, how this whole story's going it was an old truck that he owned a, uh, a motel and he used it to take the trash to the dump. So he let me drive that. So, here I am driving this dump truck to the ballpark. The ballpark, as you know, aren't the best, you know, for our facilities. And uh, I'm thinking to myself, what am I doing here? You know, I got a terrible field. I'm driving the dump truck. I live in a house with a family. <laughs> Is this really what I wanted? And obviously, it turned out to be what I wanted. And the, the real thing was I was driving home one time and it was raining and I turned on the windshield wipers and the wiper fell off the dump truck hit another car on the other side. So I, I went and get it, apologized, and the guy saw I had a wear hand thing on it, and I drove home with my head out the window like a dog, just getting plastered you know, with rain because the windshield wipers didn't work. And I remember checking reality when I pulled in, I said, this, this is not what it's supposed to be. This is the best of the best. So anyway, it I was really there.
0: is all about the players in that it league. It and is. 100%, it is. I, I, some of my toughest, good. some of my toughest fielding games were at Wareham on that gray parking lot surface yeah. they had. And John Wild, yeah. John Wild was still alive when I was yeah. playing and yeah. coaching up there. good, well, Legendary yeah. great human being. Yeah. We have so many great baseball people, you know, throughout the yeah. history of of pro and amateur mm-hmm. side. And he's he's in the top for me of, yeah. of just baseball guys. He cared so much about the Cape League, about the Wareham franchise. Oh, yeah, um, just you know, unbelievable you, person. John Wild was
1: right on the head, I, and, and that was the whole thing. We made the best of it, we made that dirt and the best dirt around because I knew that's said And see. That's one good thing about being a junior college coach is that we worked on fields. We know fields. It isn't beneath me to grab a rake or to drag the field. I didn't have guys to do that for me. You did everything yourself. You recruit, you raise money, and you take care of your field. So for me, it was no big deal. I loved working on the field. So we first thing I did in the first day, I turned the field around because I didn't want any of my good players getting hurt and I was embarrassed and I went and rented an edger I got some dirt, and uh, we got the thing playable. And then, luckily, the next two years, they hired contractors to, to help the fields get better. But yeah, it was a humbling experience with that. I would humbling.
0: I would go up two weeks early to work on Falmouth's field. You'd get there, and there'd be clover all over the grass, and just they just yeah. never worked on it because it just wasn't uh, part of their culture up there to, to work on the fields. Yeah. And so I show up, yeah. and luckily, I grew up around it, and I knew how to take care of fields. So yeah. I would... I would spend two straight weeks of just at least trying to get it playable for the guys.
1: Yeah, yeah and I did the same thing. So We're, we're alike at that, too. And, and, see, I didn't know anything about that. I mean, all I knew was about the cape and how great it was, and I'm thinking this. They didn't tell me I was going to be going in a yellow school bus, you know, back and forth to things with my knees, and I'm only 5'9", five, 5'10", five, and my knees are in my face all the time. Hey, I didn't even see the cape going down in that because I had a green seat in front of me that was so high I can only look to the right and left. I couldn't tell you what we where we were and what was going on there for two years. I was taking this thing, and uh, so it came to be the players. And you know what? It was really amazing to me. The players adapted to that. I mean, these are players that were they were basically you know, catered to their whole career, and now they have to work on the field. They have to dress in this high junior high school locker room. You got to work
0: the camps. You got to work the day camps.
1: And you worked in the community, which I required them to go out and do with the elderly and high school and, and the elementary and read books to them and all that. And uh, I thought it was part of the whole growing up process. I really did. It was important to me. And they they understood that. And so I think they they ended up, you know, diving into that. We had some guys that are very good. It hit home one time when we were at the end of the season and going in the playoffs and we go to a an adult senior citizen thing. And then there's one of my players by himself with four purple-haired, gray-haired ladies, just having the best time with them and laughing with him. And I thought I would go over and save him. I thought he got corralled over there. But, you know, I, I talked to him there, whispered his ear. He, he, he's, I'm great. I'm having a great time. So it hit on me. what, And I, I still, to this day, I'm going to follow him. But, you know, he's going to be a good person in life, you know.
0: At, at what point in the summer 2018 did you think you guys would win the Cape League championship?
1: When I last out was yeah. recorded. I mean, it was – I mean, we had fog. We were doing well, and the fog came in. That
0: <laughs> fog. The- That's the <laughs> other thing about the Cape. My first yeah. game I played at Katuit we're at Chatham, and the fourth inning the fog yeah. rolls in, and yeah. somebody yeah. hits a home run to right, and it hits the hill, and they call the game. I'm like, I've never seen anything like this yeah. before.
1: Yeah, well, we shouldn't have been playing, and Chatham's exactly where it's at. And they cancel, you know, they stop it right in the middle of your championship game. You didn't know that. We had to drive all the way home and come all the way back and pick it up. So it was a special run. I mean, to go 6-0 in the playoffs, which I guess at that time I didn't even know that's never been done, to win the league championship also. So to make the full run of the table, that's the first time it's been done since they had playoffs, made it even more special. And, and the players were special. We had – As you know in that you basically have three seasons out there you have the first season with temp players to hold the fort down until the the army comes in and then so your studs come in and then they play and then a lot of them leave for various reasons they got to get home to school their fifth grandmother died you know after the all-star game what i have left to prove type thing so then you got to go hunting for those fill-ins at the end the last two weeks And that's the one part I didn't like about the Cape, but we had a nucleus of players that kept us together that whole summer. And I really feel that was the key. They were a bunch of UCLA players. We had four UCLA players and got very close to those kids and um, just were quality people. John Savage does a great job with his, his players. And from day one, never had a problem with, they were the team leaders and they established this whole thing. And right to the very end, they weren't talking about going home or anything else we got unfinished business and all this stuff. So uh, that that's when I sort of saw how our team stayed together a little bit, even though we had to add people to make a run at it. I mean, I, I grabbed a kid. We talked about Alaska. I grabbed a kid from Alaska that pitched his last game and had to be down all the way across the world, if you will, to get to wear him, to play in a game to be qualified on the list. And he got in there like two hours. He was on, on planes and trains and everything else for forty 40 and you end up pitching five innings for us <laughs> that help us win the championship. You know, so uh a lot of things gotta fall in place and we were very fortunate.
0: What do you feel like were the biggest difference with with coaching or players in two thousand and eighteen than when you first started?
1: In the Cape or, or any uh, any. 2011? Well again, that, that's a familiar question with all that and the, the biggest thing I say is distractions. There, there's so many more distractions than today's players. There's so many things that they can do. And uh, I remember, I'm coming from an old school coach that basically taught us the game. And the way you taught the game is you played the game. We played, during those times, you can play winter baseball. We played 14 innings on Saturday and 14 on Sunday, and we learned the game. Now, you know, it's tough to break down, you know, your velocity, whether are your pitcher, your spin velocity or your hitters, your exit velocity or your angle bat head stuff and all that. And that was just coming in when I was finishing up at Wareham. And and I understand all that stuff, but that doesn't help when you're in the batter's box and you're thinking, and I saw players thinking way too much. And, and I tried to stupefy it a little bit, if you will, see ball, hit ball. You, you can't think of anything else. You know, you swing, 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 and then stop. But I, they were being over-analytical. They were so worried. They go back to their stats and see I, I, my bat speed was down tonight or my 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 bat level and all this stuff. And I'm just, like, shaking my head and let them go with it. I mean, I don't want to be the, the old man of old baseball type of thing. But um, I was accused a couple of times of old school, you know. And I, I, I said, I meant it. You know, being able to catch ground ball and throw it to first base and it flies old school. So I'm old school, you know you have a problem with that. Line yourself up the throw, yeah, that's old school. Making contact with a runner of third in a one run game and the infield feel back, yeah, that's old school, you know, so I got accused of that a couple of times, but I just rolled with it and said, yeah, I am, that type of thing, but that's the biggest thing I would see with the players, is that just so many things, their phones, their computers, you know, they wanted to be taped, and I have no problem with that. I mean, I videotaped one. The first one to start videotaping on the field. I made up systems so we could do that. I have no problem with that to help teach them and visualize their swing. But when it becomes almost, I don't know, non-existent communication, not talking about the game, just viewing the game, I just that was something I really pressed. And and uh, so I tried to stay away from some of that a little bit, just had more little huddles uh, I always talked to them after every game we would go over just a little bit because I knew I wouldn't get them the next game, and I know they wanted the lead because they wanted to go get, get something to eat, so I had them. And I said, we're going to talk about this and, and review a few things. So uh, that's probably the biggest thing I saw.
0: What What are some of the similarities between the 2018 players and the players when you first started?
1: Well, um, they all they all love the game. I mean, they still – and that was a great thing at the level I was at. They weren't there because of their parents. You know, they went there because they had they, they wanted to play. And they wanted to get to the next level and they were willing to pay the price to get to the next level. So that meant going to the weight room, going to my study hall, you know, going out on the field and working. I mean, it was a major commitment in life, which I don't know if they'd made prior to that. I mean, it was a commitment. These players back there were the same way. I mean, they saw the cape as a way to make a commitment, to make a statement, to show one of my best stories. We, we had a pitcher at Wareham uh, that we had one more out to get. They had the best hitter, Toggleson from Arizona State, when it was up. And uh, we had a man on base. And uh, I had a Division II pitcher throw a guy named Hart. And I went out to the mound. I normally don't go out to the mound. But I went out to the mound. I said, hey, what do you think here? You know. He goes, I'm going to get him. And I said, okay. He said, what are you going to get him? With? Well, I'm going to throw him a slider right here. I know he can't hit it. And I'm going to strike him out. I said, that would be awesome. you know." So I walked back and told the pitching coach, you know, because he goes out, he said, he's going to strike him out with a slider. And uh, so here's a Division Two guy out of nowhere. Right? I don't need my price, junior high, based in Arizona State, the eventual number one draft pick. Yes,
0: yep, player of the year.
1: <laughs> yeah. And sit hit 25 home, refreshing and all that stuff. And I'm just like, okay, here we go. And uh, he threw that slider and struck him out. And that's how we won the game. And the, the, the feeling you got, the goosebumps that you get, I mean, that's in no other, you know, I got that when my kids were born and all that, but when something like that to these guys have worked hard and how much that's going to mean to that kid for the rest of his life. He can never do anything from that point well, on. Well, yeah, you
0: know? he can tell everybody that. I struck out Spencer Torkelson to, to win the Cape League championship.
1: <laughs> that's right. And he's got video to prove. Yeah. <laughs>
0: what do you feel like makes a great coach?
1: Well, commitment. I mean, it's still, even today, you, you have a lot of help. and it Did it you learn a...
0: that from Coach Kincaid?
1: Yeah, yeah, he was. One George man.
0: said the same thing. George yeah. told yeah. a good story on himself about trying to leave the field early and Coach Kincaid yeah. getting after him.
1: Well, he said, you know, he, he he prepared, you know, two hours a day for the practice the next day type of thing. Yeah. And I, and I did that too, just because I'm slow. But um, I do remember Wally got to coach for me for one year at the end of his career. He was in the best shape, but it was my dream to have him on. Wear a Santa Ana hat instead of a Cerritos hat, which was tough for him to do. Uh, but he came out and, and he coached and, you know, I'd listen to him and I told the players who he was and respect this man and, and what he does, because he wasn't quite at the top of his game and all that. But I remember, and I asked him, I said, you remember coach, when we were in the state playoffs, being Santa Anna college, he came up and, uh, it was just at the very beginning, and you told me if I'm I playing on Saturdays and Sundays at that time. And I said, no, Coach, I'm not during the winter. I said, you know, I need some family time and a little bit of weight If I can't get it done Monday through Friday, I'm not doing this thing. And I remember him saying, he says, you'll never win a championship. And that hit me hard. I mean, that's almost bad as when Coach Kincaid broke a toothpick of George Horton and sent it to him in an envelope. You know, it's like a horse's head out there, uh, you know, and, and all that stuff. Sent to the Godfather, but anyway, he uh, he told me that, and I always remember that. And uh, so we were playing that state championship, and he came down. He went coaching with me. He goes, "You remember that when I told you this, this?" And I said, "Yeah, I still remember that, because I was wrong." He says, "I was wrong. I wish I would have spent more time with my family because I was afraid to lose." Here's my mentor talking to me at that level, I almost burst in tears and just says that I would give a lot of the championships back just to spend some time with my boys and my family. And, uh, and I always remember that. So I always did that. I mean, I, I was guilty of practicing a lot. I, don't get me wrong. I spent a lot of time with it, and Luckily, I had family that realized all that. And it was great to uh, to have a family like that because you got to have that. Otherwise, you're not going to make
0: do you feel like that? that's part of growing in the game, though, as a coach, is you figure that out later on? I think all of us as young coaches, like, you you feel like you have to work 90 to 100 hours a week. And then as you – well, you also get – you get smarter with your work, too, and more efficient, so probably don't have to spend as much time later on just because you're more efficient with what you're doing.
1: Well, and, and also you get people – you know, like with George, you know, he had a lot more people to work with. For him to get the stuff he wanted done at the community college level, you didn't have those people. You'd have a, a guy to come off after work and his work clothes to work with you, or you know, luckily I had a couple of good uh, high school guys that got out after, early enough to come on over. But they're all volunteer type of things, so you took a lot upon yourself. It was very time-consuming. That's what I see. The biggest difference is it's still very time-consuming, but the four-year level they have a lot of people. Yeah. I mean. They got a lot of, and it was nice in the Cape to have that. I mean, I had a stat crew, a radio crew, a trainer, a fitness guy, a couple assistants, and I'm like, whoa, this is just, you know, I got to let them do their job because I was, you know, I was doing it. Uh, so I think that's that's a big change, you know, for that. And and coaches, they learn that a little bit to balance it. Now the NCA doesn't give them any choice. You know, we used to play, the four-year schools, Pepperdine, USC, and that in the fall. And that was like our season. It was awesome. I mean, we got to go. We played a three-game stint with Arizona State. And, uh, you know, we held our own. We always had a 500 level. And then the NCAA stopped them playing winter baseball uh, on that. And it really hurt us more than them because it showed my players they can play with them. There's not much difference between the two of them. So... That really changed that work ethic. So the NCAA's forced these guys to leave them alone, let them go to class supposedly, have non-mandatory, mandatory practices, you know, and all this sort of stuff. Yeah.
0: You were in the game for a long time, coached a lot of games. you have any morning or evening routines that you liked um, that helped you sustain the type of career that you had?
1: Well, I always try to take care of my body. That was one. I mean... Um, you know, take care of your body, that's your home, where are you are going to live? I mean, you got to take care of that. So that was a, a priority and I felt the players saw that too. And it was very important to me that, you know, I had the energy and I had the commitment to do that. So, and being an exercise physiologist, it was important too. So I still, to this day, can still run, or not really run, jog. Well, it's not really a jog, it's a fast walk nowadays. I had a woman passing twins in her stroller the other day when I was running by the beach, I got pissed, man. I I took out after her. Luckily, she turned, or I probably would have killed myself, you know, trying to beat her on that. But uh, uh, that's always important to me. I I think how you project yourself, how you look, uh, the players see that you hand yourself professionally, you know, on and off the field. And I think they respected that because when I was a professor, I was in the classroom, but two out on the field, we always took pride in our field and whatever we did. We had I don't know if you remember Kakuya grass. Kakuya grass was the arch enemy of Bermuda grass. And it came over for a while and it, it would overtake your field. And so it was a battle for years. I made my players go out and pull the Kakuya grass out of the field just for a pride fact. And and that was something we established for those. I mean, because they took care of the field. They cleaned the field afterwards, they raked the field, they did everything. Uh, and it was their field. And somebody threw trash on there. They got on them, you know, about that whole thing. Um, so it taught, taught them some responsibilities along with that process.
0: I made our guys at Western. I was a head coach for seven years. We still – I made them work on the field. I just felt like it was the, the right thing to do. Um, I, again, I, it's part of then developing pride in your program.
1: Did you have, I had guys that never uh, never mowed a lawn anything Um, but pick a rake up yeah yeah, nothing well they just just different different generation but
0: at some point they're probably going to have to mow their own yard at some point at some uh, point
1: i feel like i needed to take them to home depot and just uh, walk them through there and show them what a crescent ridge or something was because they had no idea they can get me on a zoom meeting uh really well but they can't go out and you know, fix their car or turn a nut or a bolt or anything.
0: I was fortunate because Western had a really good ag program, so I would have guys that were going to go into farming on our team, and oh, wow. and so they would they would carry the load for a lot of the guys. Some of the city guys, the Chicago kids, they would carry the load for some of those guys and and teach them.
1: That's a sign of a good coach. You find things like that, right? I mean, you find the guys if you can't do it well, you find guys who can do it well, and you did. And that's I wish we had one of those. We didn't have that at St. <laughs>
0: Do you have any fail-forward moments? Do you have anything along the career that you thought maybe was going to sidetrack you or set you back that maybe was one of the best things that ever happened to you?
1: Yeah. um, You know, right in the middle of my career, there was an opportunity to go into administration, which some people had encouraged me to do. And I wasn't quite ready, but there was a job up in uh, Santa Rosa, which is in Northern California, beautiful community. Great JC and everything else, but it would mean move my family, but it would mean getting out of baseball. Um, but I needed to try that, so I went up and interviewed, and I got down to the final two interviews, uh, final two people, and I ended up not getting that job. It was probably the best thing that would happen in my career because then I continued on, won some championships with that, and the guy that got it lasted less than a year, and they called me and asked me if I wanted that job, you know, after that and. I didn't and my ego would allow me to take one, but two, I didn't want the job and I knew the direction I wanted to go. I knew where I wanted to finish. And with that, so, uh, yeah, that's probably the best thing I, I didn't do was to make that move through there and able to stay at home.
0: You talked about Ken Revisa, What are some other resources that you used as a coach along the way that you felt like helped players?
1: Well, I used everybody. I'm I'm a product. I didn't reinvent the wheel. I'm a product of my former coaches. I, I wasn't that innovative. And I just took things that they did and applied it to myself that would work for me. I can't be Wally Kincaid. You know, I can't just not say anything. That's not in my personality and get the point across. If I could. I wouldn't say anything. You know, I'm not the most outgoing guy anyway. I like this covert thing. I don't have to talk to people. So. It's pretty nice. I don't have to wait to long say, how you doing? And so for me, it's been somewhat of a blessing. But uh, I, I'm not him. And Augie's just the opposite. You know, Augie's the flamboyant, finest dresser in the world type of guy and uh, sells everything. And, and I'm not him either. But uh, his motivational things, uh, his speeches, his dedication to commitment day in day out, you know, I've borrowed some of that to go on. You know, I And I'm lucky. I've been a product of some things. There was Ben Hines is a used to be a coach at Laverne College, won championships, but also coached at Arizona State for a while, and also uh, moved up the ladder and was the hitting coach for the Dodgers when Kirk Gibson hit his home run. And uh, Ben was I got to spend some summers with him. We won a national championship, NBCA championship, and all that. And but I learned. There's no real magic. Like with Ben, I went up. We were flying home after we won the championship, and I sit next to him. And I was a young coach. I had my yellow pad and paper ready to go. I said, well, "What's the success to coaching? You've won a lot of championships and all that." So he leaned over to me and he goes, "You recruit nine studs and let them play." I go, "Okay." with that down. <laughs> went back to my seat. So that through, all, I was really ready to get some great stuff. And I always laugh at that, you know, and, and there was truth to that. I mean, you can only coach so much. Uh, you got to have some good players. But that I took that from him and realized, again, I better make sure I get some players.
0: Well, my dad always said he's never seen a jackass win the Kentucky Derby.
1: Well, and you won't. You know, I don't care what happens with that, but you're exactly right. So your players make you look good. But I think you can make average players into good players and good players into better players. Uh, and you can win with good, committed players, uh, and you can just grind them out type of things. Dave Snow was well-known for that long Beach State during his day. Do you
0: think Dave Snow's underrated as a coach? Do you think he gets yeah. enough credit? I I, I mean, I, I just know how good a coach he, he was. Do you, do you think he gets enough credit?
1: Well, you know, he likes to stay out of limelight. He's a lot like Wally, and uh, unfortunately, he never joined the ABC. And that's why he's not in the Hall of Fame. And uh, Wally never joined the ABCA. And a little known secret, and it'll go to the ABCA. But uh, the reason we got him in is I started paying later in his career. I paid for his uh, membership in the ABC. So we qualified. We got him the Lefty Gomez Award, which was great, but we still wanted him in the Hall of Fame. So we had to jump through some hoops and we did that and some help from Bob Bennett and some other people that knew of Wally and that we finally got him in, but Dave isn't going in there either. He just doesn't have that. And so he's always concentrated more on baseball. Wasn't worried about anything else on the outside, but yeah, he, of that when you talk of Wally's in my mind, you talk of, uh, Augie's. you got to talk with Dave Snows that got Augie to where he was and did his own program and brought something from nothing to something. And, uh, Left a lot into baseball. There's a lot of terms out there, you know, from dirt bags to dopes you know, getting hit. Yeah. There's a lot of day snowisms out there. Yeah. What,
0: what does it mean to you to go into the Hall of Fame?
1: Well, it's, uh, you know, I look at that list of people, and I've been associated. I was on the Lefty Goldman's Committee and all that for a while, and I always wondered if I would get a shot to go into this small town you know, West Coast community college guy. And uh, and it's a sort of a self-promoting thing. You know, you need to get somebody to promote you. And then you get into the committees and you got a shot. But uh, if you don't have that self-promotion thing, it never happens. And uh, luckily for me, you know, I pushed hard for Wally, some other people, uh, Rob Cooper from Penn. From good friend and uh he was saying hey what year did you go in i said i haven't gone in He says well he deserved to go in before all these other guys did i said no not necessarily they they somebody stepped up for me and uh he goes i'm gonna step i'm gonna do it right now so anyway he got the paperwork rolling we got all the letters in and then i was able to to sneak in there to get through it because it's that's it's not hard.
0: sneaking in you look at your numbers and and the things yeah, that well, you've done in baseball that's not sneaking in
1: well, you know, it's, it's, and I say that in jest, but I do understand a lot of the committee members don't know about California community college baseball. Um, they don't know how good of a level it is. It was the, the, the committee's East coast bias in a lot of ways. And then a the good thing, not saying that's bad at all. So you never just knew, but you know, now when Scott got in, uh, I knew there would be a shot down the line and, and, and uh, Dennis Rogers got in and said, okay, the time will come eventually. I just hope I'm here to enjoy it. And of course, I'm all excited to enjoy it. And what the hell we do? They cancel it. <laughs> you know, so,
0: hey, now yeah. it's not canceled. We're just, yeah. oh, the oh, on-site yeah. will be postponed to Chicago. Another story in my
1: chapter, but you know, I was ready to go to Washington, D.C. I've been there since I was a junior in high school. And you got all these great plans going a week early. And then you got the inauguration, you know, afterwards, the week afterwards, and you know, maybe staying around for that and maybe a Donald win and I'm a Donald, the Donald or the other Donald or whatever. You know, I had all these scenarios set up. So, uh, of course, it didn't happen. And I understand it completely. Don't get me wrong with all that. And, and Chicago will be great, too. I love Chicago. Um, but it, it is it is special. And uh, it was nice to hear from a lot of people once the word got out uh, to Say you know well, well done, you know well deserved and all that. So there are those accolades with that, but you're still sort of like I look at that list and I'm very hungry. I mean, with the people that are in and what they've done. And again, maybe it's a little bit of being at a community college level. You know, where if I was coaching at you know USC or UCLA, then you might even think you're more deserving. But the ABCA is not about that. And it's just about acknowledging people done well at all levels, high school, whatever it is. And and I appreciate that for that. I've been a member of that for forty two years now, and I finally get my membership paid, so that's even better.
0: <laughs> we have so many great coaches at every level. Everybody's situation is different. Everybody's journey is different. And yeah. you know, I know everybody wants to talk about D one, and I was at the D one level, but you know, right. guys like yourself. Right have had to teach more, you know, have had to develop guys. You, I appreciate guys just as much at that level or the high school level because you know the challenges and, and the things that they have to deal with on a daily basis that some of the upper-level coaches never have to deal with. Now, they have their own set of problems. Well, yes. But, but, yeah, well <laughs> – agents, parents, Agent,
1: yeah, yeah,
0: uh, egos yeah. with players. You know, it's a little different. The recruit, recruiting is so much different at that level. You're recruiting younger kids, so they may or may not work out. You know, they're, everybody's got their own cross to bear at, at all the levels.
1: Well, and it is. And uh, I got to know Tom McDonald, you know, who's was the Lefty Gomez Award. And, and Tom's a great guy. And I got to go to – he asked me to go to speak at some places with him, like Germany and, Switzerland and New Zealand and stuff. And, and I was just at awe of, of knowing Tom and his background and his knowledge and, and his commitment to the ABCA and everything that he's done with that. And, again, it's just sort of eye-opening because I didn't know anything about high school baseball from uh, wherever, Minnesota, I think it is, whatever he's from. You know, you don't play baseball out there. Wisconsin. That's, that's so cool. the, yeah, the, Wisconsin. Upper, the
0: upper Midwest, yeah. It's, yeah. it's cold. Yeah,
1: yeah. So, I mean, then you appreciate they have so little time, they got to get it all done. And, you know, here I'm in the sunshine shape. We can play 365 days out of the year.
0: And I get that. And I get that's
1: why baseball changed the dates and everything else to try to make it equal, you know, with that. But uh, uh, it's just what you did out here. You know, you're in California, you played baseball.
0: What are some final thoughts, Coach?
1: Well, first of all, I'll thank the ABCA. I mean, that's just – said. I mean, that organization, I've been, I'm a product of that too. I mean, I talk about the Kinkades and I talk about Snowman and, and, and Dorito, but the ABCA, you know, I've been to, I think I missed one convention and I was one of those guys that was always there sitting up in front, taking notes, taking stuff back. And half of it didn't work, you know, because I'm not that coach, but, you know, some did stick and made me a better coach. And you know, just being a product of that and how this, this association just evolved. It's amazing to me, you know, with all the teaching opportunities they have and just watching the growth of that over the years. And uh, it's, it's just been a part of my life, too. And it will continue until I'm no longer a part of this. I, uh, it, whether I'm coaching or not, I still plan on attending conventions just because I enjoy being around the baseball people, the vendors the coaches, the administration and all that. So um, they're, they're a whole part of this thing. So to go in there, if, if that final thing is, is great. And uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to that day.
0: Thank you very much.
1: All right, thank you. It's been fun.
0: Congrats again to Coach Sneddon for his induction into the ABC Hall of Fame. I loved how he intertwined his teaching background with his coaching. He embodies what it means to be an educator. He's another living legend we have in the game and so much wisdom when it comes to teaching and coaching. So much to learn from Coach Snedden. He was ahead of his time working with Ken Revisa. and I love the quote, staying right here. I also love the fact that he used in the classroom breathing techniques with firefighters and policemen. Thanks again to John Litchfield, Zach Hale, and Matt West in the ABCA office for all their help. Feel free to reach out to me via email, rbrownlee at abca.org. Twitter at CoachB underscore ABCA, Instagram at RyanBrownlee17, or direct message me via the MyABCA app. This is Ryan Brownlee signing off for the American Baseball Coaches Association. Thanks, and leave it better for those behind you.